I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Michael, have you got a minute? Could a Mercedes comeback be on the horizon? And it was O Canada that missed Verstappen. Canada, O Canada, oh how we have missed you. Lights out and away we go and Max Verstappen gets the better start from Fernando Alonso and Lewis Hamilton away quickly too. I love the engine. Oh, this is epically bad. For Sergio Perez, he is out of the race. Virtual yeah. safety car. Ferrari are going to make a stop. Looks like Red Verstappen Bull are coming out stopping. as well. Hamilton will get a decent exit and is racing Ocon now down towards turn one. Charles Leclerc has Daniel Ricciardo as the next car he wants to try and overtake. And that's why we've got yellow flags. Yuki Tsunoda in the Alpha Tauri. Sorry, I'm out. Safety car, safety Full car. Safety and this car. is absolutely worked in Carlos Sainz's favour. When does Verstappen want to release the rest of the pack? And Carlos Sainz has gone right with him as well. That is Fernando Alonso getting passed by Charles Leclerc. Max Verstappen can just start to relax and to rest a little bit to win the Canadian Grand Prix. We're loving the O Canada today, chaps. Hello, I'm Shannon Mayry, your host of the Race Directors podcast. And I'm joined by the soon-to-be blue flag backmarkers, F1 journalist Ed Spencer and serial podcaster Joe Spagnoli. Mysterious F1 Twitter menace unpaid intern is, yes, still doing his paid interning, but rest assured he will be back with us in a couple of weeks. Now, chaps, did we enjoy O Canada? How did we feel about the race? I thought it was okay i guess ed why don't you start just like some of these races this year a bit of a slow burner i would say it really caught a light within the last 20 laps when the safety car came out of the Sonoda's rather bizarre accident coming out of the pits but i thought it was a fairly okay race to be honest with you i think there was no one really going to stop Verstappen. he'd been flawless all weekend and i don't think anyone else was going to win that that race and unless your name was not Max Verstappen so yeah good result for him good result for Carlos Sainz Peter although he'll be wondering why didn't he attack in the last few laps and try and snatch the win um, and also good result for Mercedes finally they get something back after what had been a miserable start to the season McLaren oh dear oh dear oh dear please remember to get the tyres out next time I loved it personally it was my favourite Grand Prix probably since 
at least Melbourne, maybe even Jeddah. Um, I'm just really, really happy to see this venue back. I love the intrigue of the different strategies, the safety car period as well, which neither Red Bull nor Ferrari were particularly happy about the slow decision from Eduardo Freitas to put the full safety car out there. But no, it may have been a slow burner for a race, but 70 laps, they went by pretty damn quickly. And just another reason why I'm very glad that this track is going to be on the F1 calendar for a very long time. I will agree with you there, actually. It was really nice to be back in Canada and there were some really enjoyable parts of the race and certainly a little bit of drama. Lots of very rubbish pit stops, which has obviously left a lot of people at the edge of their seats and rather disappointed because it certainly wasn't a good week for Charles Leclerc at all. Once again, really, really bad time from him. Quite a disappointing result, I think, as well. Joe, as our resident Italian, how are you feeling about Charles, about Carlos, about Ferrari's overall performance of the weekend? Um, I'm kind of with Ed earlier. I don't think anyone other than Max Verstappen was going to win that race. And even, even if he hadn't had the straight line speed of the Red Bull, his runs through the Wall of Champions all weekend were just so perfect that there was no chance of Sainz getting through either the first straight or the second DRS zone straight. As for Leclerc, obviously, they're only starting towards the back through Ferrari's own terrible power unit issues at the last round. They've already replaced every component but the energy store. And I think four of them are beyond the season limit already. So that's a lot of penalties still to come, let alone this weekend. I thought he personally did a very good job of coming through the field, but Ferrari didn't help themselves. I was checking out the Deltas towards the end of Leclerc's first stint. He'd started on the hard. He'd been stuck behind Ocon, but they were gradually pulling ahead of Lance Stroll and the DRS train behind him. And I, I even said it to the people I was watching it with. All they need to do now, have a good stop, slightly below the average pit stop time, and he comes out ahead of this train. One good pit stop was all Ferrari needed, but they screwed it up. They had a problem with the jacks, cost them two and a half seconds, and that was the difference. He could have come out ahead of Lance Stroll. In the end, he came out behind not only Stroll, but the three cars that were behind him. Without having to overtake that entire DRS train, Charles Leclerc could have been on for a podium after that safety car restart. And again, who is to blame? No one but Ferrari themselves. Yeah, they're not having a good time of it, are they? But let's talk Red Bull for a minute, because I feel like for them, it was very much a mixed bag of a weekend. Great result for Max Verstappen. He looked absolutely unstoppable. His times compared to everyone else in qualifying were just blisteringly quick. I I couldn't quite fathom how much faster he was than everyone else in Q3. Um, But then on the flip side... You've got Checo Perez, who had a reliability issue yet again and was not able to finish the race. So it's very much a a 50-50 win-lose for Red Bull. Ed, how do you feel about how it went for Checo? I was absolutely gutted to see him out. Well, he looked good in practice. He was right up there with with Verstappen. But unfortunately, he was a mistake of his own doing by simply going too hot into the corner and beating it. And yes, he was trying to get reversed, but it Trying to reverse one of these cars is it, it's it's almost like trying to climb Mont Ventoux two with a wheelbarrow of horse manure. It's it's nearly impossible. And from then on in, he would have an uphill task. And unfortunately, he wasn't able to fulfil it in the race. It's big bad news for his championship challenge because of the fact that Charles got a good haul. Max won the race, obviously, and he didn't get anything. So yeah, everything that could go wrong for Checo did go wrong this weekend, and I think he's going to be hurting a lot going to Silverstone, but this is a circuit he doesn't do particularly bad at. So we'll see. There's plenty of time to rebound. This season is still, as I say, very young and anything can happen in Formula 1 and it usually does. So we're, I mean, we're 
less than halfway through the season now. You don't think his championship hopes are dead in the water, though? No, it's not over till the rather chunky race director waves the checker flag in Abu Dhabi. That's what I would say. You love that one. You absolutely love it. But let's talk about Mercedes, because I feel like it was a super positive weekend for them. Uh, Hamilton in third, Russell in fourth. Really amazing to see Lewis Hamilton back on the podium uh, for the first time since the start of the season. He was obviously very happy about it as well after saying, uh, I think it was on Friday, although maybe someone can correct me. um, Oh, this car is so bad. Was that Friday he said that? He was really, really down on Friday about that car. And then lo and behold, he ends up on the podium in typical Lewis Hamilton fashion. Joe, thoughts on Mercedes? Because it feels like they could maybe be back in the game. It was the weekend that Hamilton needed, and make no mistake, it would have been a major story if George Russell had been able to out-qualify and out-finish Lewis around this track in particular, which I think statistically is his second most successful, even more so than Silverstone, which of course is the next venue. It's just another one of those weekends for Mercedes where they are the third fastest car. We all know they're the third fastest car, and yet for the whole of Friday we're thinking... Are they? Are they even in the top half of the field, realistically? You've got at least one of the drivers complaining about it. And yet when they come out of the weekend, and not only have they managed to get a car on the podium, but they've completely outfinished Alpine, who have been the team constantly nipping at Mercedes's heels all year in terms of pace, but never seem to string it together. How many podiums do Mercedes have now overall? It's like four or five podiums between the two drivers. Alpine haven't, haven't even got a single top five yet. Mercedes, for all their issues, they're very, very good at stringing together a, a good race weekend. Very much agreed. But let's talk also about Alfa Romeo if we're going to talk about teams doing well. Because you had Bottas in seventh and Joe in eighth. I mean, hello, Alfa Romeo. I feel like they started off really strong, lagged a little bit. But it was really nice to see, especially Guan Yu Zhou back in the points after scoring points in his his debut race. I thought it was a fantastic showing from Alfa Romeo this weekend. I was absolutely chuffed to see it. Ed? Yeah, I would agree. It was a good performance uh, from Alfa Romeo. And a good time as well, because after the highs of Spain, things had not been looking too good for them. So, yeah, they looked strong throughout the weekend. Bottas had a, a really good drive. And Zhou in particular arguably his best weekend in Formula 1 so far. He looked very smooth, very calm under pressure. His qualifying was good. His race was good. Deserved P8, although, you know, he finished P9 originally for Alonso to be penalised, so he got promoted. But, yeah, it's definitely what Alfa Romeo needed. And I, I will say it again, that car will be on the podium at some stage this year. I just think that Bottas or Joe will get it on the podium. It's not a sledge. Alpine... I've kind of dropped the ball a little bit in the fact that they messed up the strategy for Alonso. So Alfa could be in the hunt for fifth. And yeah, I would say it's a fairly good weekend's effort. Also, Zebi Pudjala uh, jumped in the rather freezing cold Montreal Lake after getting the double points. So all smiles for Alfa Romeo, albeit very soggy ones. Alfa Romeo podium, I can believe that. I can get behind that 100%. But we can't be positive all the time. So maybe we should be talking about some of the negatives now and things that make me very, very sad. I think you know what we're going to talk about. It's McLaren. That was horrendous. My goodness. Ricardo in 11th. Lando Norris finishing 15th, only probably for the grace of the fact that three people DNF'd. Absolutely horrendous show, I think, this weekend from McLaren. And that double stack pit stop where no one knew what tyres to put on Lando Norris's car. My 
God, that was extremely painful and embarrassing to watch. And it's just not what we expect, even if they are struggling this year. We don't expect to see both McLaren drivers finishing outside of the points. And that, especially having Lando Norris so low down in the in the ranks as well. And I know that he was having engine problems this weekend, but even so, it just seemed, even, even to see Daniel Ricciardo outperforming Lando, it didn't feel like a, like an achievement really when you're finishing in 11th but joe embarrassing horrendous bad what do you think lando had been having issues all weekend as far as i'm aware i think they were turbo related i know will joseph was trying to get him to do i think it was lando who was trying to get to do burnouts in the pit lane just to see if the power unit was all working in harmony and over the course of the weekend it's fair to say it wasn't the car was having issues relative even to Ricardo's, and we know that the McLaren's not particularly great in a straight line so around a track like Canada you really need to be on the best of your game and the big difference between McLaren in the first half of last season think about you know the podium at Imola how brilliant Norris was until the summer break was that McLaren were incredibly well drilled not only in strategy but also pit stop timing that's just something they haven't got this year there's been a lot of talk about how much they screwed over Daniel Ricciardo on multiple stints in Baku same could be said about Norris this time, and that double stack, Shannon. McLaren can be quite thankful that they haven't got a competitive car this year, because if that was Ferrari doing that, if that was Red Bull doing that, we'd still be talking about that incident next season, because it's so embarrassing. That kind of that lack of preparation is something that fundamentally should not be happening at the highest level of open wheel racing. And it's just another weekend we come out of it. I still don't know where McLaren sit in the performance rankings. I would say sixth. But some weekends are as high as fourth. It's impossible to tell because they just lack facts. consistency. Straight facts. And I think they've actually been um, the best team, one of the best teams this year for pit stops after historically being quite average. Um, they've had some of the fastest pit stop times this season. So it's shocking to see that from them, honestly. Um, and I would agree. It's really hard to tell where they sit at the moment because it's so inconsistent between tracks. It really seems that their performance is probably a good 80, 90 percent track dependent at the moment. And a track that agrees with their car, they do extremely well. A track that doesn't, you'd think they were were Williams or last year's Alfa Romeo. It's just it's very inconsistent and I think quite disappointing. Um, But if we're going to talk about disappointments, let's talk about Aston Martin and seeing Seb Vettel finish in 12th in Canada, which I don't think anyone was expecting. I was almost expecting him to have a, a at least a top 10, maybe even a top five finish because he loves this track. But Ed, were you quite disappointed to see him out of the points? I was surprised, if I'm being honest with you. They, they look quick in practice, but in qualifying, it just went all horribly wrong. Even if in FP3, Sebastian was in the top three. So yeah, I was very surprised to see him go out in Q1. And of course, in the race, it was damage limitation. Uh, for him and I think with the fact that they had quicker cars behind uh, him it was just going to be a difficult race and unfortunately P12 is all that he could muster on the other side of the garage it was a completely positive weekend because Lance Stroll got a point on home soil which you know considering that he had a rough run of races it's kind of what he needed because there were some feelings that you know is Stroll losing his, his mojo and now he's you know back in the top back in the points playing positions. But yeah, not a good weekend for Aston Martin, not a good weekend for Vettel. 
not of his own doing, of course, in my opinion. I just don't think, you know, that car is, you know, really got it in the sense. It's definitely improvement on its, its elder brother. It's still the seventh, eighth best car on the grid at the moment. Agreed, agreed. And I think probably a similar story could be told for Alpha Tauri this week. Very disappointing results with Sonoda ending up in the wall. Gasly finishing 14th ahead of Norris. Just Gasly's having a real, real tough season this year, I feel like. We were so excited about him last year and he was performing incredibly well. But this year it's it's not looking so great. And a lot of his races have been quite forgettable for me. I feel like we barely see anything from him. And when you have a look to see in the, the finishing lineup where he's finished, it's another very disappointing race for him. Whereas last year... It was, you know, fifth, sixth. He was always finishing in the points. So feeling for Pierre Gasly this year because 2022 doesn't seem to be doing him any favours. Um, Joe, thoughts on Pierre Gasly? We won't talk about Sonoda because he ended up in the wall. There's nothing to say about Sonoda other than that is 100% on him. And he fundamentally, well, he could have changed the way the race went for the senior team, let alone Alpha Tauri. Um, it's just it's so frustrating being a sort of Gasly fan to see how much is going against him. But the lack of attention is kind of inevitable when you go from having the fifth or sixth, maybe even fourth fastest car, often challenging for points, to a car that really, really can't. The Alpha Tower is probably eighth on average this year. And at Canada, it may well have been even worse. Um, that's just what happens. There's less TV attention on you. And an impressive performance for Pierre Gasly now is 11th or 12th in that car. Last year, it was fourth at Zandvoort, fifth elsewhere, a sneaky podium at Baku. That's naturally going to get a lot more attention. But yeah, I, th- I think Pierre Gasly and Guan Yu Zhou are probably the two drivers that are getting the least attention this year, in part because they're actually not doing anything wrong. Um, they're just let down either by ill circumstance or in the case of Gasly, a car that has regressed massively versus what Alpha Tauri had last year. Now, we, we would be remiss not to talk about our other resident Canadian on the grid, and that is Nicholas Latifi. Rumours flying around all weekend that this was going to be his last race. What a slap in the face that would be to sack someone immediately after their home race. But do we think that that's actually on the horizon? I mean, he finished 16th. The only person that finished behind him was Kevin Magnussen. Do we think they are actually going to sack him this week? Or is that just grid gossip? Ed, what do you think? Um, well, he says he's going to finish out the season, which I don't know. Racing drivers say one thing and team bosses say the other. And Oscar Piastri, who's going to be replacing him, is said to be his chances of racing this year are very slim. So I think he'll do this end of the season and then they'll say bye bye. I just don't see the rhyme and reason of sacking a driver midway through the season to throw a guy in who hasn't got the experience. And this is no disrespect to Oscar Piastri, but I don't think throwing him in at the deep end and saying, go and beat Alex Albon after no testing is a particularly good idea. You might as well finish the season out, give Piastri enough preparation so when it comes to 2023, he's ready to go. And so... Yeah, I think it's best just to keep him going, keep him for the rest of the season, give him a proper farewell, and then say au revoir. Could be, could be. Joe, do you think he's on his way out, or do you think he's staying on? I just have to aggregate all my sources, one of which, of course, is Ed Spencer, and Oscar Piastri saying is a slim chance of him racing this year. It just seems, I think I said this last week, particularly unusual to get rid of him after this race. If they're going to make a change, 
I would have expected it slightly later at the half season break. But the, the the worrying thing yet again with Latifi was just how far off the pace of Alexander Albany was. Granted, he hasn't raced here in Formula One before, but it's little excuse because it's not like Albon's been racing here recently. And Albon, to my knowledge, had only raced here once in Formula One anyway. So it's hardly like you're going up against a Raikkonen or, or an Alonso. Um, it, it's becoming increasingly difficult to defend Latifi's position in that team. But again, I just I can't see them doing it this early. But the thing is with Williams, they do have a car that with an amazing strategy and a virtuoso performance, it can finish in the points this year. It's not like, say, Russell's first two years. And if there's any points up for grabs, you have to have the right driver for it. And Nicholas Latifi, there's nothing to suggest after this weekend or indeed any weekend this year that he's going to be challenging for points anytime soon. A very fair point. Well made. But gentlemen, it's time to go for a grid walk down my favourite grid, and that is Gossip Grid. Welcome to Gossip Grid, the part of the podcast where I impart unto you, dear listeners, the latest whispers flying around the paddock. Word on the grid is that things got heated between Toto Wolf, Christian Horner and Mattia Binotto in a meeting about porpoising this weekend, with Wolf reportedly getting quite angry. After the meeting, Toto Wolf publicly called out certain, quote, pitiful team bosses, accusing them of being two-faced and only looking to preserve their competitive advantage. And the real kicker? All of this supposedly took place in front of Netflix cameras. Looks like the next season of Drive to Survive will be interesting. Hell, they can probably make three episodes out of this alone. And according to Moroccan F1 fans and multiple sources in Morocco, Morocco might enter contention versus South Africa to host a Grand Prix on the African continent. According to multiple sources close to the Moroccan government, about 500 million US dollars was withdrawn from the Ministry of Finance funds. Could we see a face-off for the face of the African continent in F1? Time will tell. That's all the gossip I have for you this week, dear listeners, but rest assured, my ears are always open. So, gentlemen, Moroccan Grand Prix, possibly? Is this something that you guys have been hearing? Any, any whispers that you've heard in the media room, Ed? No, not really, although there was a brief rumour at the start of the year. Um, I would be happy with it. Um, whilst Morocco looks increasingly likely to get a slot on the F1 calendar, Spa is looking potentially on the ropes. Apparently, they are still struggling with the contract at, with F1 and spa Francorchamps, so we could be losing Spa for a long time if it falls off the calendar. Also... Um, the French Grand Prix has been back in the news, and this time there is a round potentially going to be held in Nice in July. Uh, Frédéric Ferré from L'Equipe spoke with Domenicali this week over the Montreal weekend, and they announced a proposal, which apparently the mayor of Nice also has a link with Paul Rica. So, yeah, good time for the French Grand Prix, potentially, that it could have a much older, bro- younger brother to Monte Carlo. I have been hearing about this Nice Grand Prix as well, and it does sound fairly exciting. But Joe, how do you feel about the rumours that your team boss, Mattia Bonotto, got apparently very angry in this argument with Toto Wolff and Christian Horner? Because I feel like he's usually a very calm man. I can't imagine what Toto could have said that would have got Mattia Bonotto in a flap. 
See, I object to being characterised a as a as a diehard Tifosi and b as someone in any way involved with Scuderia Ferrari. However, I have to press X to doubt on this occasion because I can't imagine Mattia Binotto getting angry or particularly heated at anything. I've seen interviews with this guy ever since the mid-2000s, the days where he couldn't speak English. And even in native Italian, a language that makes anger look so much more beautiful, even then he looked incredibly calm. So whatever Netflix have covered is going to be a massive exclusive and culture shock for me. But it's just really unusual, you know, the two teams that are at loggerheads in both championships, or at least they were before Ferrari decided to do, Ferrari decided to Ferrari themselves, are now basically on the same side against a Mercedes that could not be less relevant at the moment in the constructors' battle. So, yeah, very, very unusual. And I look forward, as you said on Gossip Grid, to this uh, this occupying half of Drive to Survive Season 5. At least three episodes minimum, I guarantee it. And I do apologise for stereotyping you, Joe, as our resident Italian, as being a Scuderia superfan. I am sorry. But... Out of the present and into the past, it's time to look back with Ed Spencer. Now, we all know Silverstone has a very large and boisterous crowd, but they are also extremely helpful in giving the first indication that you are gaining on the car in front of you. Here's Ed with the first example of how people power helped Nigel Mansell take a crucial second British Grand Prix win. We all know how people power can do anything from overturning control aspects of daily life to winning home an athlete when they look to be tiring in the final throws of competition. When the chips looked down for Nigel Mansell, his little disciples willed him on as he managed to overcome a gap of over 20 seconds to beat his rival Nelson Piquet to victory. It is the story of how Mansell used people power to his advantage. It's the story of Silverstone in 87. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. After just under a year away, Formula One returned to Silverstone for what looks set to be a showdown between the two Williams drivers, Nelson Piquet, and the man whom 95% of the fans on hand at Silverstone came to see, Nigel Mansell. But neither were leading the championship at that point of the season, as Lotus Azette and Senna held a one-point lead over Alain Prost. 
with PK third three points back on his countrymen, whilst Mansell lay in fourth six points back after taking victory in France. The top four locked out the first two rows of the grid, with PK taking the pole by just 0.07 of a second, with Senna and Prost on row two, but over a second down on the Williams pair. Pierre-Carlo Ginzani wouldn't start from 19th after getting a push from his Ligier team after running out of fuel in qualifying. The race officials took a dim view of this and threw the Italian out of the race. Go! PK blasts away. Prost comes up. Right alongside Mansell and Prost leads into Cox. Where PK went round the outside of Prost to lead onto Hangar Straight. With the Frenchman quickly losing second to Mansell as the field roared through to complete lap one. Prost continued to be shuffled back on lap two, with Senna getting passed to go into third place. With Thierry Boutin now breathing down the Frenchman's neck as he looked to relegate the reigning world champion to fifth. Lap three saw the first two retirements of the race, with René Arnoux giving his Ligier mechanics a chance to catch the last ferry back home with an electrical failure, whilst Ivan Capelli's Ford V8 caught a blaze, putting him out. Whilst the cameras watched Capelli's Ford V8 turn into an open-air barbecue, Prost repassed Senna for third at Cops on lap five, whilst Gerhard Berger was the first of the big players to be eliminated for a crash on lap seven, just as Philippe Balio parked his Lola Ford with a gearbox failure. Andrea de Cesaris gave Brabham's sponsor some unwanted airtime with a turbo fire on lap eight, earning him his fifth retirement of what was turning out to be a season of disappointment for the Bernie Eccleston run team. Alessandro Nanini also retired on lap ten, although he retired with an engine failure. As the race settled down, the top six began slicing through the normally aspirated back markers, with PK holding a comfortable lead from Mansell, Prost, Senna, Albert, and Johansson. PK back for him in the lead with Mansell just going through in the background, just lapping one of the uh, cars. And things really look very comfortable indeed for the Williams team. Prost has dropped back a little bit. Prost was the first to stop for tyres on lap 30 with the McLaren team getting their man back out in just over eight seconds as he rejoined behind Alboreto. As the Williams pair approached half-distance, the lead was just over a second. But when coming up to lap Lotus's Satoru Nakajima, the Japanese rookie balked Mansell after letting PK glide by, costing Mansell precious time as he managed to squeeze past the Japanese rookie at the chicane. Meanwhile, further down the order, Christine Danner's day came to an end on lap 32, a gearbox issue. Alex Caffey's good run in 14th ended with an Alfa Romeo engine failure, whilst Adrian Campos ended Minardi's day on lap 34 with a fuel system failure, as Mansell pitted for tyres on lap 34 after picking up a vibration. Nigel Mansell is coming in, and it's going to be critical his time compared with that of Nelson Piquet. The brick got out in just under 10 seconds, as he tried to overhaul the 28-second gap by breaking the Silverstone lap record on multiple occasions as he sliced through the traffic like a hot knife through butter. Many wondered whether PK would stop, but with 22 laps to go, he was told to stay out by his Williams team, who told the Brazilian that his tyres were OK, and that he could go the distance on his current set to achieve a retired with a smoking Megatron engine. But Mantle was on another planet, consistently breaking the lap record as the Brit was willed on by his partisan fans, as he relentlessly pursued his teammate who was now getting a taste of his own traffic medicine as he was now caught in a Tyrrell sandwich on the run down to Beckett. And Mansell isn't far off schedule uh, to catch Nelson. There are 18 laps to go and he's 18 seconds behind him. So he's on schedule to catch him just about on the last lap as things go at the moment. And Nigel really charging with his chase. Prost's once promising race came to an end on lap 53 when his tag engine gave up the ghost promoting Senna onto the podium as he tried to remain on the lead lap. 
By now, Mansell was breaking into the one-minute nines, and with the gap now down to over six seconds, the boisterous British crowd, along with Mansell, could taste an unlikely victory. As he came to lap centre with relative ease, as PK's lead was now virtually wiped out. With just three laps to go. So this is where Mansell will be looking to challenge. PK will hold the inside line. Oh! And Mansell's through. Overcoming a 25 second gap to kickstart his championship campaign with PK a disconsolate second ahead of Senna, Akajima, Derek Warwick, and Thierry Bootson. At the end of the race, the fans broke ranks and invaded the track with Mansell now on foot after his Honda engine blew up on the cooldown lap. He was given a hero's welcome as he picked up his second British Grand Prix trophy. He would later thank the fans for their support as their cheering and waving gave him the first indication that he was gaining on PK. However, Mansell would have to wait five more years to take his maiden championship as PK took his third world title after the Brit was ruled out of the Japanese Grand Prix as a result of a back injury in practice. Silverstone 1987 was arguably Mansell's finest performance in a Grand Prix car. But it was also the day when people power play the hand in deciding the fate of a race. It's fair to say that Lewis Hamilton will be hoping for a bit of people power next Sunday when we come back to Fort Silverson for the British Grand Prix. So let's see what will happen next time in the 2022 edition of the British Grand Prix. I'd argue there's a fundamental difference in having, say, Nelson Piquet, whom the British, the British crowd absolutely hated, or Nico Rosberg, who the British crowd absolutely hated, versus George Russell, who they absolutely adore. Like This is the first time in a long time where Lewis Hamilton is going to come to the British Grand Prix and a genuine majority of the spectators are also going to love his teammate, who is, by all accounts, still in incredible form. George Russell has still finished top five at every round this year. I don't call him Mr. Consistency for nothing. You're right. He is on an incredible run. Absolutely incredible, Joe. And hopefully he can keep up in Silverstone. And I think you're right. Lewis is definitely going to see probably the most support at a race that he's seen for a while. I think he obviously has a lot of support in the UK anyway, a lot of British fans. But I think the fact that he is in more of an underdog place right now will no doubt warm a lot more people to his cause perhaps than when he was super dominant. Because that's what we're like as a human race, isn't it? We love an underdog. We love when people aren't doing well so that we can get behind them. So I wouldn't be surprised if he sees even more than the normal amount of support at Silverstone this week. But back into the present day, chaps, it is time for news of the week. So I want to know what is your news of the week? And we'll kick off with you, Mr. Spencer. Well, the biggest news of the week was obviously Pierre Gasly being confirmed to Alpha Tauri for 2023. A lot of people did think there was a slight chance that he would be going to McLaren, as did Mark, particularly Sebastian Vettel did retire. But Francis Tolles dispelled all those rumours by announcing in the Saturday press conference that Gasly would be retained for 2023. So that really effectively killed silly season off before it even starts. Very true, very true. Although I think we're all still hoping for a little bit of a silly season this year. We do love it, really. We love the chaos. But Joe, what is your news item of the week? I went, just Royfield, you can cut this. Ed, I told you before the podcast started, that was my story. So fuck you for stealing it. (laughs) 
Anyway. <laughs> Twat. Seriously. Hold on. I have, luckily, I have another one because I'm ultra diligent. Well, Ed says he's already killed Silly Season before it's even started, so I'd like to shove even more superfluous nails in the coffin. Uh, the other, The other potential seat would, of course, be where the hell is Oscar Piastri going to go? The 2021 Formula 2 champion won it in his rookie season. Incredible form by any standards for a junior driver. It is now looking all but certain uh, that Williams have been able to negotiate with the Alpine driver programme to now have two lone drivers for next year. Alex Albon to be partnered with Oscar Piastri ahead of the 2023 Formula 1 season. The source for this is you know, it's pretty obvious. Um, they asked Otmar Safnauer, will Oscar Piastri be in Formula One next year? To which his answer quite quickly was simply yes. So Latifi's days are numbered. Damn, no more Gotifi. Almost confirmed. What a life. I think we all knew it was coming, though. But my news item of the week was actually also stolen by Ed Spencer, although I won't get too angry about it because I didn't tell him I was going to talk about it. But it is the news of a possible Grand Prix in Nice, which we have already discussed. And I think it is very exciting and it would probably be a lovely setting. But we shan't dwell on it, chaps, because we've already discussed it. And it's time to jump back into the past with classic teams of F1 lore with Joe Spagnoli. Now, we at The Race Directors are deliberately not your dad's F1 podcast. All three of us are under the age of 30, and we know a majority of you are too, which is why, of all the teams we could have chosen, Joe's picked one that started in uh, 1954. You're going to have to forgive me for sounding like a massive telegraph reader this week, but um, ahead of the British Grand Prix, and in what is episode 007 of the classic teams, a look back to the original Aston Martin would have been a convenient way to insert British Racing Green at any opportunity. But Aston Martin's first foray into Grand Prix racing was an absolute disaster. They didn't have a single win. Apparently, some things never change. But in the earliest years of Formula One, there was a team decked out in green that basically launched British engineering to the top of this sport. So here's a little story about a certain Van Wall. Industrialist Guy Anthony Vandervelle brought attention everywhere he went, be it his marital problems, falling out with friends, or coming across as a, quote, tough nut spoiling for a fight, but the man was a smart motor racing operator, and after becoming dissatisfied with the management of the BRM team he was financing, Tony set up his own team in the English capital. In a move that was somehow even more pragmatic than it sounds patriotic, Vandervelle brought in both Norton motorcycles and a certain Rolls-Royce as engine consultants, and behind the task of modifying Grand Prix Ferraris, the team were creating some truly innovative concepts, not least Dunlop's disc brakes. In 1954, these concepts and an in-house engine were put into a special chassis from Cooper, dubbed the Van Wall Special, and set loose in limited F1 appearances. The ambitious car was unreliable though, and even if Peter Collins and Mike Hawthorne had seen the chequered flag, they'd have been miles behind the dominant Mercedes and Italian giants of Alfa Romeo, Maserati and Ferrari. Even without Mercedes in 1956, the Tricolore empires needed design geniuses to be beaten, which is why Van der Vel established his young team of Frank Costin for bodywork, Harry Westlake for the cylinders and one Colin Chapman as lead designer for the Van Wall car. 
1956 lineup couldn't extract the maximum from a troublesome car rife with potential, but the team kept improving their concept, and by 57 Van Wall not only had the fastest car on the grid in a straight line, but an all-British, all-star lineup of Tony Brooks, Stuart Lewis Evans, and the legendary Sterling Moss. An early Monaco podium for Brooks came between frustrating retirements, but by the time F1 reached the British Grand Prix at Aintree, everyone knew what the Van Walls could do. Moss led from pole position, and everything was looking perfect until his Van Wall engine gave way yet again. Luckily though, this was F1 in the 1950s, a very different era, so Brooks brought the second car into the pits and handed it over to Moss, who set off on one of his most legendary comeback drives. Moss was back in the race, but the delay had put him in ninth place. Vera in the Maserati now led the field as Moss set off in pursuit. One by one, he overhauled his rivals, and shattering the lap record four times, finally went to the front once more. Setting up a commanding lead, Moss came in to take on 10 gallons of fuel and a bottle of pop in 27 seconds. Some going. The first Formula One victory for a British car came at the British Grand Prix with not one, but two British drivers. Van Wall had the whole sport talking, and while Fangio roared on to win the Drivers' Championship, Moss was the man in form, winning not only F1's only ever race in Pascara, but the season finale in the Italian's backyard of Monza. For 1958, there was no reason to change drivers, and with the Van Wall VW5 performing better than ever, a full assault on the championship became the focus. After almost winning in Monaco, Moss dominated at Zandvoort. Moss is storming ahead in the championship, and if the Van Wall can maintain reliability, it has a good chance in the next race at Spa. And it's Moss who leads into the first corner. Charging hard on the first lap, Sterling misses a gear change from fourth to fifth and over revs. A valve touches, and the Van Wall can but trickle forlornly back to the pit lane. Tony Brooks takes over the lead in the remaining Van Wall. Moss and Brooks won three races each in 1958, and although the former had the outright pace, Ferrari's Mike Hawthorne had reliability. He suffered only two DNFs to Moss's five, and despite a final round win on the streets of Casablanca, Moss and Van Wall lost the Drivers' Championship by a single point. However, 1958 had also brought in a new invention, the World Championship for Constructors. Ferrari may blame quirks in the point system, but their two wins to Van Wall's six spelled out the inevitable. The first official constructor's crown in a sport hitherto dominated by Italian brands went to a British team. It's such a shame what happened next. A combination of regulation changes and the declining health of Tony Vandervelde all but eliminated the team's involvement in Formula One, and Tony Brooks only entered two more races for Van Wall, finishing neither, and the team were never seen again in Formula One after 1960. Despite this though, the men behind the title did go on to even greater things, but while Chapman and Costin revolutionised Grand Prix racing with the classic Team Lotus, we mustn't forget that everything started with the dark green Van Walls. And I know I sound like I've got the Union Jack coming out of every single orifice, but it can't be overstated just how important Van Wall were at the time, especially considering what I didn't even realise about Grand Prix racing in the 1950s. 
So many teams were reliant on privateers. Like Maserati was selling 30 250Fs, I think it was, to privateers around the world. Van Wall, it was just them. They didn't sell those cars to anybody. Like a relatively tiny team using the old factories. And yet the first ever British manufacturer to win in Formula One with a car that, as I've made abundantly clear, couldn't have been any more British. You do sound like a massive Telegraph reader. You are absolutely right, Joe. I just, I'm envisioning... Union Jacks and English English flags all over your house, sticking out of your window, coming off of your car. If you think those vibes are strong already, then you won't be happy to, uh, to learn that, that basically over the course of researching that piece, I finally came to understand just how bloody amazing Sir Sterling Moss was as a driver. I think Ed said in the past to me that Mike Hawthorne is, quote, the most undeserving or least deserving F1 champion of all time. Couldn't agree more. Moss absolutely deserved that championship in 58. And um, just the one final point about the Van Wall is that, yeah, it's the first British manufacturer to win. It's a hugely significant moment, especially if you read the Daily Telegraph and the history of motorsports. Um, but actually, the most important car on the grid at the time was also British. And that was the, uh, the Cooper T43 slash T45, which Moss also drove on occasion. The first ever rear-engined Formula One car. And once that that fundamental design decision was reached. The sport never looked back. Probably the most important Formula One car of all time. But um, in, in terms of the 50s context, the Van Walls are iconic and with good reason. As always, we always learn some very important lessons from your segments, Joe, about some pretty iconic parts of Formula One's history. But if we're going to talk about Formula One icons... Tony Brooks was a British racing driver who participated in 39 Formula One World Championship Grand Prix from 1956 to 1961. He competed for Connaught, Van Wall, BRM and Ferrari, winning nine Grand Prix in an era that featured Fangio and Moss. Tony died in May 2022 at the age of 90. Today, producer Roy Field speaks to Tony's daughter, Carrie, about his life and growing up as the daughter of a Formula One driver. It's the German Grand Prix on the fantastic Avis circuit in Berlin. The race is run in two sections and involves over 300 miles of the fastest driving in the world. It was on this steeply banked corner that Jean Berra was killed in the sports car Grand Prix the day before. The race was a walkover for Ferraris. Tony Brooks, Dan Gurney and Phil Hill finished first, second and third. Britain's Tony Brooks broke the lap record. His average was over 146. He's now just behind Brabham for the World Championship. Hello, this is producer Roy Field. I have a very special and dear friend, and she has a wonderful link to the sport that we love, Formula One. Her name is Carrie Brooks, and she's the daughter of Tony Brooks, who was the first Brit to win a race in a British car in the 1950s, which is the first time since the 1920s. The sport had been dominated by the Germans and then in the 1950s by the Italians uh, that when Tony Brooks won in a van wall in 1957 along with Sterling Moss, it broke the mould and really set in place British dominance of Formula One, which has never really relinquished ever since. Tony Brooks was a wonderful driver, but unfortunately he passed away just last month. So it's really great to have his daughter Carrie with us today. Carrie, you are the the daughter of a famous Formula One. <laughs> 
driver. Growing up, were you aware of how special, how unique your father was? Well, I grew up sort of spending a lot of my childhood in the pits. So my childhood memories involve smell of oil, petrol and burnt rubber, (laughs) which was very much there. And I remember when I was very young, being there very little. I mean, I must have been about two or something when Jim Clark was racing as well. And Mm -hmm. those days, you know, you had a lot of access. I was actually sort of, you know, holding my mum's hands in the pits, being sort of meters away from the cars coming in. It was just part of growing up. Tell us how your father got into motorsport. What was his story? So my grandmother was one of these very, very wild British women who sort of rode horses very fast, drove cars very fast. And she had an Austin Healey, which was quite a sort of a little race car at that time. And my dad started racing in that Austin Healey. And that was the beginning of his career. So he has kind of speed within his DNA because of his mum. What did he tell you about the early 1950s and being, let's say, in Formula 2 before he actually gets to to, to Formula 1? There's quite a famous story about him because he was studying dentistry. When he got the call from Connaught to go and race in the Syracuse Grand Prix. He was completely unknown, sort of getting into the Connaught car, racing against Mercedes and the the teams that were at the top in the 50s, and he went and won. And it was just this complete sort of, who is this guy? Where did he come from? So your dad raced in, in an era where he was up against Fangio and Moss, totally iconic names. Did these become like family friends? Was your dad hanging out with with Sterling Moss? And and, and if so, do you remember? Mum and dad were very, very close to Fangio. I mean, my mum's Italian, first of all, and they were very close to Fangio indeed. And Sterling Moss and also, I mean, Graham Hill. I know it's a later stage, but Mm -hmm. I used to play with Damon Hill when I was little. It is a club, a driver's club. And the thing to remember in the 50s is that, you know, there's a very good documentary called The Killing Years. And it was The Killing Years because you took your life in your hand. And many of my dad's contemporaries died on the circuit. I mean, if you go back in the stories of him having to drive past cars burning in flames and things like that and the accidents that he had as well, because you did mention the my dad winning with Sterling Moss, the British Grand Prix, in the Vanwell. Well, he had to stop because of the injury that he'd got, you know, in a previous race. And it was sort of life and death in those days. It was what I call gladiatorial. So your father won races for Vanwall mm-hmm. and also for Ferrari, and he raced mm-hmm. for Connaught as well. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that family move, because the Formula One was, was very different then. It very much was a cottage industry in the 1950s. Can you tell us a little bit about that move to Italy? Because your mother was, is Italian. There's a real sense, because obviously because I know you, that as British as you are, you're also in- incredibly Italian. So tell us about your father's move to Italy driving for Ferrari and then maybe mm. how that helped shape the family and, and the family's dual nationality. 
very much dual nationality. I mean, my dad did drive for Ferrari, won so won Grand Prix and things for Ferrari, and they sort of never forget you. And the fact that he had an Italian wife was a big, big plus. He, in fact, because of all the Italian relatives that he had who don't speak a word of English and still don't speak a word of English, he had to teach himself Italian. So he got himself a teach yourself Italian book. And as my dad, that's very single-minded. He sat down and taught himself Italian. And actually, he spoke very good Italian and understood. And so as a family, we grew up speaking two languages. So we jumped from one to the other all the time. And, you know, the fact that my mum was Latin and Italian was very important to him. He went to a Jesuit boarding school and it was very English and very reserved. So you can't get more opposite than a full-blooded Italian woman. <laughs> Did your father have any stories about Enzo Ferrari? Because at, at that point, Enzo Ferrari very much was in control mm-hmm. of uh, the Ferrari team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was Mr. No-Nonsense. I mean, my dad, the, the few times that he did talk about him, he said, yes, he was Mr. No-Nonsense. He knew exactly what he wanted. He was like the godfather. <laughs> no messing, exactly knew what he wanted. Ah, Carrie Brooks, thank you for coming on to the Race Directors podcast and sharing some recollections of your father, Tony Brooks. Thank you. Ladies and gents, that was a taster for a longer interview that will be out in a very special show next week where we go into much more depth into Tony Brooks' life and his career. And I, for one, really enjoyed that. I don't know about you, you gents, but I thought that was fabulous. Joe. I was lucky enough to speak to uh, Carrie Brooks a few days ago on Clubhouse with producer Roy Field. Um, and make no mistake, before the end, she she made sure to get it into both us and the in, and indeed our audience that she is a massive Ferrari fan and always have has been, uh, which I know rubs Roy Field in particular up the wrong way uh, as a classic classic Team Lotus boy. But no, she's she's fantastic, and um, it just it just hit, hearing her emotions in response to like the old British Pathé highlight clips and. Just, you know, her father, the thing that always gets me about him, he was a fantastic Formula One driver, but we only ever had one German Grand Prix at the Arvus track, which for me is the craziest Grand Prix track of all time. One side of an autobahn, then the other, and a massive banking with no guardrail at the top. Tony Brooks won that race. Like, it takes balls to even get in a car at that track, let alone to win it at the average speed he did. So yeah, nothing but respect, and Carrie's a lovely human being. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it was a very touching interview on her father who diced with disaster every weekend and managed to do tremendous things in a Ferrari and arguably should have been world champion if it weren't for heroics of Cooper and Jack Brabham in 1959 when he pushed the car over the line to win the championship. So it was lovely to hear about who Tony Brooks was really, really was as a man because he was, uh, from what I've read in motorsport, was a very reserved gentleman. And, of course, in the time when he moved to Italy, this was an era where there was no such thing such as Google Translate or Jolingo or anything like that. You had to learn it by your own memory and looking through Ita- learn-yourself-Italian books. So it was lovely to hear about Carrie's recollections of her father and, of course, the days in the 50s when, you know, you didn't have to pay £2,000 for a paddock pass. You could just turn up, pay 20 quid on, on the door and, hey, presto, you were in mingling with the likes of Jim Clark, Graham Hill. Sterling Moss or Jose Fuelon Gonzalez or Banjo. So, yeah, I enjoyed listening to that. 
Well, as I said, lots more to come next week from that interview. But from Formula One icons to the exact opposite, it's time for Plonker of the Week. My favourite part of the podcast. Will Ed choose a driver or someone that has something to do with things that aren't catering? We're about to find out. Ed, who is your plonker of the week? Please don't be a caterer. There's a number of nominees this weekend. It's the Tifi, the traffic system. But I will give it to an entire province this weekend. It goes to the province of Alberta, whose brightest and finest will spend most of their weekend moaning about Sebastian Vettel's helmet, which was supposed to about raise awareness of oil sands, which are damaging the environment. And most of their brightest spend all weekend crying to, about a man who doesn't have social media's helmet. So a great um, tourist image for, for Alberta. Don't go there, it appears to be the case. So you are my plonker of the week. Stop crying. Well, at least it wasn't someone responsible for making the sandwiches, but I'm going to say, Ed, I wouldn't try going to Alberta after this. I think you might be banned. Just a little bit banned. Who cares? (laughs) Cue hate mail from Alberta by the truckload. Good times for the Race Directors podcast. Joe, plonker of the week. I mean, in defence of Ed, there is absolutely sod all in Alberta worth seeing. It's one of the worst Canadian provinces. I'd rather go to none of it than there, quite frankly. Um, however, I'm not going to be popular in Canada either, because my plonker of the week, it's pretty simple. Nicholas Latifi, um, just off the pace all weekend. No excuse to be anywhere near that far off Alexander Alban in qualifying. Race performance was pretty abysmal as well. It was only because of the safety car that he was anywhere near the, the surrounding pack towards the finish. Yeah, just... Of you know, of, on a weekend where you're speculated to potentially be out of the sport, whether or not we believe that, you need to put in a better performance than that. And yet again, there's just no sign that this guy is going to be on the pace before the end of the season. Well, I mean, thank you for choosing a driver. That's a unique treat for us. I am going to choose the McLaren pit crew for that abominable stop with Daniel Ricciardo and Lando Norris for not knowing what tyres to put on the car, for making a complete hash of it. I know that Lando wasn't exactly on the pace and fighting for anything particularly exciting, but my goodness, that was an absolute car crash. So they get my vote. And as per usual, we stand divided on Plonker of the Week and we do not have a winner. But it was nice to hear from you all. Uh, Neither of you should attempt to enter Canada, specifically Alberta, anytime soon. Please steer well clear because I think they'll be coming after you with pitchforks, chaps, if you do try to enter. But that is all we've got time for this week on the Race Directors podcast. Do check out our YouTube channel, uh, search for us and subscribe to the Race Directors podcast. You can watch some of our exclusive content. And if you want to get involved in the show, do follow us at race underscore directors on Twitter or like us on Facebook at the Race Directors podcast, where we'll be posting memes, updates and our thoughts and feelings throughout the season and beyond. Do give us a little subscribe on whichever platform you choose to listen to the podcast on. We appreciate your support as always. And we will see you next week for a very special show. Say goodnight, gents. Bonsoir, bonsoir. Good night, everybody, unless you're from Alberta. Ed, also, if you think I haven't noticed that you've been eating a McDonald's the whole way through this recording, you're wrong. I have to eat. I have to eat. It's my dinner. Yeah, but you didn't have to make me jealous.
I'd like to clarify that I have not. I have not eaten. I've not I've eaten not so eaten a far damn today. Thing. So I have to eat. Hmm. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 